0: Hi, this is Lily and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website beacon.church forward live on Sundays at 10:30 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. Who cares? about your ROI. I mean, that's I mean, it's sort of not a big concern, right? I mean, well, that's how I felt years ago. I remember after, I think it was probably the last big financial crisis, I was talking to a friend of mine, and everybody was freaking out about what was going on. And I was like, oh, I don't understand it. I just, everybody just chill out. What's the big deal? Who really cares? Well, of course, I didn't care because I had no investments. And so I wouldn't care at all. And now, as I am a little older and you've got your 401 thing to worry about, and of course there's other resources that get tied up in the market, suddenly you start thinking about return on investment a lot more. I mean, you really want a return on your investment you want to be able to buy low and you want to sell high you want to put a little bit in all the time and to watch that the, the power of compounding make this thing grow I mean that's that's the hope right that's the dream and the, it's it's kind of a natural desire that everybody has and and as we've seen elsewhere in the gospel of Mark Jesus takes these very natural desires he takes these things which are normal, for our human experience, our normal uh, physical human experience. And then he takes them into a spiritual realm. And he teaches us more important and more significant truths. And that's what we're going to be able to see him do here in our text. We're in this series that is called On the Move. And in it, we've been studying the life of Jesus and how he goes into this sort of non-stop action, this non-stop activity. And what he's doing is accomplishing all of these great deeds, this great work that he's doing. He's talking about the kingdom and and the message of repentance and all of this. And in today's text, we get to see what is driving him toward all of this relentless activity. So open, if you would, in a Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to be in uh, verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And as you find your way there, it is, it's helpful for us to kind of remember the, uh, where we've been before this. We've been watching Jesus do all of these great deeds. We've seen him collect a band of disciples, of kind of key followers, And he has all of these hopes and expectations that he puts on these followers. And then he's got a whole lot of people, a crowd of people, many who are asking for things, many who need things. And then there's this group of religious leaders who are increasingly hostile to him. And so we show up here and we've got the disciples who are called the apostles here. Uh, And then we have the crowds as well. So chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, All they had done and taught, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's going to be a key phrase here in a little bit. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages, Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. And in it, we have an incredible picture of the deep compassion that Jesus feels. And we see it first when he actually tells them in verse 31, the second half, he says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, which is an important encouragement for those of us who are in consistent Christian ministry. If you're a Christian and you serve in any capacity, uh, this is an important encouragement because the disciples, they had just been out. They'd been doing some great things. They were busy. They were teaching. They were traveling and they were doing this great work. And and when they came back, they gathered up, Jesus could see that they were tired. It was great stuff, but they needed rest. And in a moment of tenderness and compassion, he says, Listen, come away with me. Just let's let's just be together and, and recuperate, re-energize, spend some time, pull away from your work and make sure we keep the primary relationship intact. I love this idea. And for any of you who are sort of uh, workaholics or you struggle with identity issues about achievement and, and how you're kind of wrapped up, uh, you know, in your who you are and your worth and value and all that's wrapped up in what you can accomplish, uh, then you'll understand this. Because those of us who struggle in these ways, we recognize that, you know, our answer is to do more. When things get tough, when there are challenges, when there's an incredible amount of need that we see all around us, then we push even harder and even harder still. And eventually, the, the labor, the work of it becomes so wearisome that we're no longer tending to our own soul. And so, when this happens to me and I get, I get overwhelmed, you got family and you got work and you got the needs of a spiritual community. And when all of these things sort of begin to weigh heavy on you, every once in a while, if I'll just pause for a few moments, I hear this, this little small voice. And I think it's the voice of Christ saying, come away with me. Come, rest. My burden, it's easy. My yoke is light. This is a little bit of his compassion being revealed to the workers in the harvest. But he goes on, and it actually just straight up tells us in verse 34 that when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. Now, the word here for compassion is uh, it's, the, it's the organs, it's the, the guts. And so like if you'd seen an animal that was being butchered and, and its guts were all there, its entrails, that, that's the same word that came to mean compassion. Of course, it's because the word has to do with what we feel here. We don't, we don't feel it up here. In the same way that fear grips us here in the gut well, also compassion gets birthed in the gut. We, we, we can experience, we can feel it. And, and this word is, is somewhat interesting to study because it is almost always exclusively used of Jesus and his compassion. And when he experiences compassion, he turns around and he does something with it. When it's not used of Jesus, it's actually used in the parables, like in uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? And you've got the dad who experiences this kind of compassion, or in other parables as well. The, The God figure in the parables is often described as having this sense, this compassion that forces them to act. It guarantees that they will actually do something with what they're feeling in their gut, and it says here that he began in verse 34 teaching them many things which i just love this because we forget sometimes that one of the great gifts that we get to offer people who are far from god and even followers of christ is to teach is to encourage and of course we do that here but this is only this is only one part of how we get to show compassion to a spiritual community. Anyone who's involved in our Kids Quest program, anyone who works with Ignite or Fusion Student Ministries, anyone who's in family ministries, or you're a small group leader, or you're, you're running one of our discipleship groups, we've got a, a whole group of people in the pastoral leadership incubator. Uh, they're, all, they're all learning. We're in a teaching community. And we learn, what are we studying? Well, we're we're learning about God and about us and about his love for us and about forgiveness. And so to offer people a pathway back to God to teach them about God is one of the most compassionate things that Jesus or that we could actually do. He goes on to say at the very, uh, in uh, verse 37, he says, but he answered, you Give them something to eat. And I love this encouragement because what a, what a way to bring others into this great work and give them a sense of mission and of purpose, but also we'll see in a little bit to just include them in this great work of, of compassion. Then in verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. And there's such a settled sense there. Everybody was able to eat all they needed and their needs were met. They were satisfied. And I think sometimes we just forget this. We forget how deeply Jesus cares about us. His desire for us, what moves him, his compassion. It overflows his own, his own gut, so to speak. And it and it and it results in action that will bring about the satisfaction of all who trust in him. This is just powerful. Promises, and some of you today, you need you need rest in Jesus. That's what you're feeling, you know. Others, you're struggling with all of uh, of these kinds of, of uh, frustrations, and Jesus is saying, "Listen, you can be satisfied in Me." We 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 strive, we struggle, we pursue all of these things with a relentlessness that exhausts us, and Jesus says, I, "You can be satisfied in Me," and it's His deep desire to see us satisfied in him. But we go on in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. That's going to be important in just a moment. It tells us kind of where this was all happening. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I love it to hear when he just says take courage. That's his that's his his leading line. Take courage. And I think many of us need to hear that today. You're worried about some unseen enemy and Jesus says, "Take courage." You know, you're uh, you're worried about uh, your job or about finances and Jesus is telling us, "Take courage." You're worried about the impact this is going to have on relationships or on your family and Jesus says, "Take courage." You know, some of you are just simply worried about, about toilet paper. And, and, you know, I was actually told I can't make any jokes. So I can't, you know, I'm not, this is too serious a thing. I can't be making jokes about, you know, the things like toilet paper and stuff. But I did see one meme that, uh, that said, so uh, it said, if you, if you really do need 144 rolls of toilet paper for 14 days of quarantine, you should have gone to see a doctor Along. A long time ago and I think that's really good advice and so but what he's telling here is no matter what it is you are facing you can take courage but but he but but it's so what's so key there is he says take courage it is I it's I you see the presence of Jesus is why we can take courage now he came in such a way that they didn't expect it they weren't I'm not even sure they liked the way he showed up they were scared they were terrified by what Jesus was even doing in that moment but the presence of Jesus is all we need to take courage so that we need not fear. Now, the next section here gets a little bit uh, confusing. They were completely amazed. This is verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves. And this is a little bit uh, challenging when you kind of read uh, the commentaries because these, these are not two independent stories. By saying that, Mark is linking the feeding of the 5,000 with Jesus walking on And so how is it that they're linked? There's something more than just the compassion of Jesus happening in the feeding of the 5,000 that the disciples would have been able to take an encouragement from so that their hearts weren't hardened, that they would be able to understand the power of Jesus and what it all means. And so I think when you go back into the feeding of the 5,000, you start to get a few hints where where he mentions that they're like sheep without a shepherd or Mark mentions in verse 39 that there's this green grass uh, or they talk about them sitting down in these little dinner parties. All of this language is language that was used in the Old Testament to talk about the messianic promise that the Jewish people were waiting for, that the Messiah himself was going to come forward into our day and age, and he was going to usher in the messianic age. And it was going to bring an end to this age, and it will be his rule, his reign, and the Jewish people would be reestablished on earth under this great Messiah. And so the feeding of the 5,000 then becomes, and there's a whole bunch of verses you could look at, Numbers 27, 15, Ezekiel 34, um, you can just kind of look these up later on if you want. I'm just going to flash them on the screen, but but I really don't want to go through them all. There's Isaiah 32 and 25 and, uh, and things like that. But um, in all of these verses, what you're really going to see is that the messianic kingdom was promised in the Old Testament, and Jesus is giving us a promissory note in the feeding of the 5,000, that this was the beginning of this messianic age. And this, is a, this brings a whole lot more depth and encouragement. Now, when you link that to the, to the walking on water, you get to see that what Jesus is talking about here is that we need not fear because this age is not all that matters. The messianic promise, that age that is to come, that the feeding of the 5,000 was a hint at, tells us that this age is a temporary age this is an age of of sickness and this is an age of fear and this is an age of death but there is an age that is coming there is a, a period of history that's coming that will make this age look very small and tiny in comparison to what will come and see we are citizens of that kingdom not this kingdom and his great power will guarantee, his power over the elements themselves, will guarantee that this new age where heaven and earth become one can be ours and we can be citizens of that kingdom even starting now. Now that would be, it seems, at least coming to the end of the feeding of the 5,000. But something unusual happens here in Mark, and we can't cover all of seven uh, right now. In fact, we won't cover any of seven. But flip over to Mark chapter eight, verse one, and we find another feeding. And so we have to kind of bring, look at these two together, to try to understand why Mark is giving us these two different narratives about these these great feeding miracles. So chapter eight, verse one, he says, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. There's a hint even about where we're going with this idea of them coming a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd, To sit on the ground. and When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. So we come in verse 1 where he says there is another large gathering, and this has troubled scholars for, uh, forever because the liberal scholars will tell you, well, clearly this was a mistake. There really can't be two great feedings. There can only be one, and Mark is picking this up because it was some sort of corruption of you know, the oral transmission. The thing is there's no evidence whatsoever in any of the manuscripts that we have that this is a corruption. And there are so many differences in the details. One's 5,000, one's 4,000. There are different kinds of baskets. One's 12 that were picked up. There were seven in another. Different area, different region, different response even from the disciples if you read it carefully. And so when, you, from my understanding of looking at this, this is clearly a second feeding. The, the real value comes in asking why? Why do we have such a similar miracle? What things can we learn about it? What are the similarities and what are the, what are the differences that can give us an insight into why this was here? Like for instance, the first miracle we were told that it took place near Bethsaida. And we know that was around the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at a map of, of uh, Israel at, the, at that time, you'll see right around the Sea of Galilee is this region called Galilee. And that's where most all of these miracles were taking place. But when he tells us that this now had shifted. Uh, he uses this little phrase about being, you know, people coming from far away. It makes us go back into chapter 7 and see in verse 31 that this second miracle takes place at the Decapolis, which is right over there. And so the Decapolis shows us that, well, what it tells us? It tells us that there's a completely different audience. Now, you see, in, in our country, that might not make any sense because they seem so close together. But if you were in Galilee, it's all Jewish. But the Decapolis was all Greek. And so you're talking about an entirely different audience. These are folks that wouldn't actually be privy to the messianic promises. And so when you start to see that he's talking about a very different group, now you go back and you say, well, what else else can we learn about this? If he's really not talking to the Jewish people anymore, he's talking to the Gentiles at this point, what what does that tell us? And and when you start to kind of peel back the layers, it helps us understand some of the other parts of the text that are so confusing. There's this real hostility that the the Pharisees have in a passage we're not going to look at. Well, this would make sense if they had heard about this offer that Jesus was making to the Gentiles. You know, some people have looked at this and they go, how in the world could the disciples be so dense? How could there be one miracle of the feeding and now the disciples are faced with another miracle and they just, they can't get it. They don't understand that Jesus can do the same miracle. How could they be so dense? Clearly these, can, these two stories can't exist. But you see, I don't, I don't think the disciples were necessarily so dense that they, didn't, that they had already forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000. I think they didn't have a category for the feeding of the 4,000 because they, they weren't the Jewish people. If they had picked up any of the ideas of this, the feeding of the 5,000 being a promissory note of the messianic banquet, then that can't be offered to the Gentiles. They all have to leave because Jesus can't act. You couldn't even, if you were a, an observant Jew, you couldn't even sit down and have dinner with Gentiles without becoming unclean. How could Jesus organize a great dinner party for all of these people? How are we going to get enough food for all these people? I think that's their way of saying this can't actually happen. We actually can't repeat. And when you read through the text, you'll start to see some some other subtleties that I think might support this interpretation of the text. Now, scholars, they don't really like getting into the numbers that Jesus references here, but he does highlight them in another another section. After the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. That one's an easy enough one because we have the 12 tribes of Israel. And so at the end of this great miracle that each disciple had a basket. And the word that's used there for basket is more like a, like a knapsack size. Kind of this, like what you would carry your day's provisions in. And so that's what they had left over. So everyone in all of this new nation of Israel, in this new messianic kingdom, they all had, each tribe had a basket full left over. They had nothing at the beginning, but because Messiah is here, there will be plenty of food for everyone, plus there will be food for the future. This basket that was left over symbolizing that. But in the feeding of the 4,000, a different word for basket is used. It's actually the basket that was used to lower Paul over the wall of a city. So we're not talking about something that carries your daily provisions. We're talking about a basket that, that a man could hide in and use as an escape vehicle. So they're talking about a massive basket. And so in this massive basket, disciples have to go out into this Gentile crowd and they pick up seven basketfuls. Now, again, this is where scholars, they kind of like, this is not really good exegetical practice and I'm, and you know, don't do it. Uh, But, uh, but, but when, when you come across the number seven, it's hard not to think about the creation and the six days of creation. And on the seventh day, God rested because you see, everything was good. It was very good. And it's almost as if Jesus is, is saying, listen, yes, The Jewish people, they'll be reestablished. They'll have their messianic kingdom that they were promised. They'll be established, and the 12 baskets prove the abundance of that kingdom. But it's also being opened to the Gentiles. And it's going to be opened up to a group of people, and that will bring about completion. That's when things will be very good. And there's a whole lot more in these texts, parallels and things that are repeated and things that are sandwiched between them and uh, that I can't get into right now. But it, it seems to me like, not that the disciples didn't think Jesus could do it. I think the disciples didn't want Jesus to do it because the compassion of Jesus is extending way beyond what they are comfortable with. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And Jesus is saying, I have enough bread for all of them, for the whole of the world. And you see, the disciples are being challenged by Jesus right now in such a significant way because the compassion of Jesus that drives him to act, they loved it when it was When it was directed toward their people. But they're not so comfortable when it's directed toward the people they don't like. The people that are different from them. But the love of Jesus, it goes deeper and it goes farther than we ever really can understand. And it goes farther often than most of us would even really want. See, there is a promise here that the people who are different from you, the people you disagree with, the people that you say are the sinners who can't ever get enough of Jesus' forgiveness to make them like me, and the people who are so hypocritical and judgmental and, and and the people that disagree with you politically and the people that are are all upset and, and up in arms and, and, and creating panic and those who, who are saying this is nothing and all of the people, all this frustration, all this anger, this, this kid, if we are not exceptionally astute and sensitive to the heart of Jesus, it's easy for us to talk about them and us. And Jesus is saying, listen, my compassion extends way beyond what you are comfortable with. Way beyond. And it's going to fold people into my kingdom that you may not even want there. He's challenging us to look at our own biases and our own, our, our own frustrations, our own anger with people who we say are far from God. And he's saying, listen, my compassion compels me to move and act on their behalf. And so it ought to compel you as well. He tells us in so many ways throughout these passages and he proves to us that his compassion never runs out. You'll never hear anybody get rebuked because they come to Jesus asking for his love, asking for his compassion. What you'll see is his heart gets moved and he acts on that. And Then when I look through these two great miracles. I see one very willing group of disciples. I see one more resistant group of disciples. But in it, I see a very meager offering. I see a few fish and a few loaves. And I look at that and I go, my goodness, that's how we often feel in this day. I mean, there are so many great needs. There are so many challenges. There's so much that we ought to do. But look, we just what do we really have to offer? I mean, a few loaves, a few fish, it's not that much. And maybe you often feel that way, that that what you have to offer, your meager offering won't amount to much. And Jesus, by virtue of using this, this divine algorithm that he applies to his investment portfolio, he says, I can take your meager offerings and I can turn it into something that you never imagined possible. He doesn't view these things the way we view these things. And he invites us in both of these stories. He invites us to take whatever we have, our, our few loaves, our couple of fish, he invites us to bring them into his stewardship. We offer them up. We, we give them to him. And we don't have to worry about what happens to it because now it's in the trustworthy, powerful, and good hands of the messianic king. I'm going, to be invite, I'm going to invite the band to come up and they're going to lead us in a worship song. And as they come up, I just want to encourage each of us to take a look at these texts, to read through them, to study them, and to see how they might challenge us and apply. When Jesus takes an inventory, he doesn't find our inventory of resources lacking. He finds it as a seed investment that will do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever hope or imagine. And he has invited you into this great work And when it's about you and your family and your friends, it might be easy for you to do, but he's saying, listen, my compassion, it goes further than that. And I am inviting you into this incredible opportunity, this challenge of going beyond your comfort zone to love those who are hard to love.